If you get confused with all the letters and numbers that are associated with your retirement plans, don't worry. We're going to go over the main things that you need to know to confidently navigate your retirement options. So sit back, relax, and nerd out with me for a bit. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights, just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being here. It is an honor. Today, I am going to be talking, just myself, no one else on the show, and I want to cover the topic of retirement plans. I want to go kind of in-depth, but not super in-depth that you might potentially get lost. I do want to cover two main things, though. First would be employer-sponsored plans, and the second would be individual plans. I'm not going to go into some of the more rare plans, and I'm not going to go into small business plans. I think I'll save that for round two and who knows, maybe even round three of retirement plan discussions. Employer sponsored plans. What do I mean by that? Well, you've probably heard of a 401k. That's an employer sponsored plan. There's also a 403b and a 457. And my guess is that if you're listening to this, you're going to have some variation of that. Private companies have 401ks and Nonprofit companies or religious groups, could be school districts or governmental organizations, they have a 403B. That's what they're going to offer. A 401K or a 403B, just think of it as a qualified retirement plan that allows eligible employees of that company to save and invest for their own retirement on a likely tax-deferred basis. A 401K, which is named after the tax code that governs them that came out in the 1980s as a supplement to pensions, which pensions pretty much no one offers them anymore. And a 403B could also be called a tax sheltered annuity. These again are both offered by your employer. So as an employee, your contributions will reduce your taxable income for the year if you are putting it into a non-Roth plan. And I'll explain Roth in just a second. But Because you're getting an upfront tax break, it's reducing your taxable income, you're going to owe taxes on the withdrawals when you start to make them in retirement. So as you retire and you're pulling money out, you're going to need to pay tax on that. In the Roth setting, you're not going to get any tax break immediately in the year that you're contributing because contributions are going to be made with after-tax money. Just know, though, that the withdrawals that you start making in retirement because you've already paid tax on the contributions up front, because it was paid with after-tax money, the withdrawals from this Roth account are tax-free in retirement. Sounds pretty cool. It gets to grow tax-free and comes out tax-free. In 2019, all of us can contribute $19,000 a year into our 401ks or our 403bs. And our employers can choose to match or not. And usually we see that they're doing it based on a percentage of salary. Your employer's maximum contribution into your 401k or 403b is, honestly, it's entirely up to them, but the IRS says between the employee and the employer, you are not allowed to 
put over $56,000 in 2019 or a hundred percent of your salary, whichever is less. So technically, if you're putting in 19,000 a year, your employer can put an additional $37,000 away for you in 2019 if they wanted to. And it, that 37,000 doesn't go against your personal contribution maximum. Sounds pretty cool. I would love employers to do that for everyone, but it is kind of rare if they max that whole amount. So do whatever you can do though, to get the free money offered by your employer in that company match. They might have a vesting schedule, which will require you to stay with the company and work there for a certain period of time. Let's say your employer says you vest at 100% of the contribution after three years. Well, if you work for three years in one day, that is 100% yours. If you work less than that, then they probably have some skilled rate that will allow you to vest a portion, but not all of it. Either way, do whatever you can to try to get the free money that's offered by your employer. Now, the investments in these plans are kind of limited and sometimes they're kind of crappy. There's not much you can do about it. So you just have to make sure that you're actually doing some due diligence to understand what you're investing in. And again, you're looking for low cost, highly diversified, you know, hopefully index funds. All these things are so different. It's hard to tell. Like it's not like a one size fits all. Do the best you can with the limited funds that you're going to be given. And hopefully management and administrative fees aren't that high in your plans. Again, it varies by employer because that can dramatically erode your investment returns over a long period of time. You might be aware that when you sign up with a new employer, you might have a waiting period, which is a bummer. Sometimes it's 90 days. Sometimes it's up to a full year. But just know that when you do have the ability, you will have up to $19,000 in a year that you can put into it. So if you start in July, you might be putting a lot of money away if you can into these plans, but it is worth it in the long run. One of the things that most people typically overlook is the beneficiary part of this. So if you were to die, who would actually get the funds? Federal law states that if you are married, your spouse is automatically the beneficiary. I would still say go fill out the beneficiary form to make sure that your spouse is listed for the record. But if you want to name someone other than your spouse as the beneficiary, then your spouse has to sign a waiver that is in writing. And that is incredibly important if you are separated but not divorced. We've seen this a few times. Just a heads up, if you are separated but not divorced and you don't want your money to go to your soon-to-be ex and to go to someone else, you must have this all in writing. They need to sign the waiver. If you're thinking, well, I'll just put my kids as beneficiaries and the kids are minors, be careful because most plans will not transfer money directly to a minor and the court would have to appoint a trustee or a guardian to receive the money, which can take time and be slightly confusing. So just want to give the little heads up on the beneficiaries that it's not as easy as just throwing out a name and writing it down. There might be a little effort involved, but make sure you fill out your beneficiaries in accordance to however you'd like the money to be going if you were to unfortunately pass away. Okay. 
So I'm going to now talk about 457s and the 457B. And I know what you're thinking, like, oh gosh, not more letters and numbers. Yeah, I'm sorry. There's a ton of them. I'm only going to go over like the three big ones here and then we'll go into individual plans. But a 457B, or it's also known as a deferred compensation plan. And really it's state, local, public employees, sometimes nonprofit organizations, the hospitals, um, they often have the 457 available to employers. And what's interesting is it, it is very similar to a 403B as it has the same contribution limits, in, especially in 2019, at 19,000. And if your employer has both available, most people to get this wrong, so heads up, pay attention. If your employer has a 403B and a 457, you can contribute to both and you can contribute the max to both, which means you can put $19,000 in your 403B and you can put $19,000 in your 457 for a total of 38,000 bucks. Now, obviously you have to have the income, know that when you're putting this money away, it's going to lower your taxable income or your take-home pay that hits your bank account. But if you're making a decent salary, which I'm assuming most of you are that aren't residents, that are attendings that are listening, you could be able to do this. Now, there are a couple things that you need to understand about 457s. One is they're not governed by the ERISA law. So it remains on your employer's books. It is part of your employer's general assets and it's subject to potential loss if they were to file bankruptcy. Essentially, the plan is it represents a promise by your employer to pay you back. And the biggest downside is if your company declares bankruptcy, most of these guys aren't putting these plans into trusts that couldn't be touched by creditors. And if it's not in a trust, that money could potentially be wiped out or partially wiped out in bankruptcy. If you work for a government organization and they offer a 457, you're pretty much good to go. But in the private realm, if you have a 457, you need to be a little more careful. You know, is your company financially secure? And you need to feel confident that your employer will be able to honestly honor their commitment down the road when you want to depend on this money to live off of and have that as part of your nest egg. Now, because 457 plans reduce that IRS annual limit that you can put money into, some employers opt to not match the 457 contributions, but they will open up what's called a 401A. And I'm not going to go too much into that on this show, but they'll open up a 401A to provide matching to the 457. So if they were going to match a little bit of that 19,000 that you put in, then they could open a 401A and put matching inside there. So it allows you to put up to that full $19,000 and just depends on employers. I just wanted to throw that out there. I don't want to get too much in the weeds. I want to keep this more high level, but it's something I think just is good to know. So now that we talked about kind of those big three, let's go into the individual plans. An IRA is really a government sponsored tax deferred personal retirement plan. It is not an employer plan or associated with your employer. Those previous three plans I just talked about are employer sponsored plans. The next ones I'm going to be talking about 
our personal retirement plans. So there are a, there's a lot of IRAs actually out there, but the three I'm going to really talk about are the traditional IRA, the Roth IRA, and the spousal IRA. The traditional, same as, as when we talked the 401k, there's a traditional and a Roth, and it really depends on deductibility in terms of uh, taxes. So if you were to qualify, basically your contributions for a traditional IRA would lower your tax burden for the year that you make them in. Deductibility is honestly based on income or modified AGI or adjusted gross income and your filing status. You cannot get any deductions on your contributions if you make more than $74,000 a year if you're single or $123,000 a year if you are married filing joint or if you are married filing separate, $10,000 a year. And a lot of people who are trying to play games with their student debt and trying to figure out the PSLF, you know, min-maxing that and filing married filing separate, they forget this piece. And they can get in trouble when you're looking at your IRAs. That is basically the $10,000 is very different than the $123,000 if you're married filing joint. There are mandatory withdrawals at age 70 and a half. And these are called RMDs or required minimum distributions. Upon reaching 70 and a half, the IRS requires you to withdraw at least a minimum amount each year from your account to pay ordinary income taxes on the withdrawal. Basically, the government's saying, hey, we want your money. We want our money. We want our tax money, right? And if you don't take those withdrawals or you take, let's say, less than what they're saying is required, you're going to owe a 50% penalty tax on the difference between the amount you withdrew and the amount you should have withdrawn. That's a big deal. So go back and listen, rewind that for a few seconds to, to make sure you understand that piece, even if it doesn't apply now and that age is changing, but it's an important concept to understand. To put money into a traditional IRA to actually contribute, you have to have earned income. The amount that you can contribute in 2019 is $6,000. For a Roth IRA, it's going to be different because distributions, when you take money out in retirement, they're not going to be taxed. And that's because you don't get the tax benefit up front. So eligibility to contribute though to a Roth IRA will phase out at certain levels of income. So it starts to phase out at $122,000 if you're single or $193,000 if you're married. I'll get into the backdoor Roth strategy in just a second, but I probably should have stated that if you were contributing to a Roth 401k, they don't have any income restrictions, unlike the Roth IRA, which has those phase outs that start at those levels. So I probably should have said that a little bit earlier. I don't mean to go back and forth, but that Roth 401k doesn't have income restrictions. But honestly, if you're listening and you're an attending and you're making this, you probably shouldn't be putting money in a Roth 401k because your tax rates will likely be lower in retirement, but everyone's situation is different. So I throw the disclaimers up there, but just be aware of that. And just like the traditional IRAs, your Roth IRA must have earned income in order to contribute to it. And it has the same contribution maximum as the traditional IRA, which is $6,000. A spousal IRA 
allows non-working spouses to contribute to an IRA just as if they were working if their working spouse actually has earned income and enough earned income to allow them to contribute. The kicker with this one is that you must be filing a joint return, married filing joint, in order to contribute. It'll work the same way as traditional Roth IRAs I just talked on, but it allows non-working spouses to contribute money and save for retirement that way. So I briefly mentioned the strategy of a backdoor Roth. There's a lot of buzz around this. It's been around forever, it feels like. And everyone at the beginning thought they were doing something sneaky that the IRS didn't catch it. And in this most last tax update, they actually acknowledge that the loophole is is there, it's fine, and uh, continue you know, able to do the strategy. What the strategy is, is if you're phased out of a Roth, you know, that 122,000 for single and 193,000 for married is where it starts. If you're phased out of that and you have to put money in a traditional IRA, well, if you remember, you can't get a deduction. Let's just say you're married. $193,000 for the phase out is where it starts for the Roth, but you can't get a deduction in the traditional if you make more than 123,000. So if you're already phased out of the Roth, you're definitely not going to get the deduction in a traditional. Your investments will be allowed to grow tax-free during that time until you take it out of your traditional, but then you got to pay tax on it. And that's not that fair, honestly. If you get no tax benefit up front, it can grow tax-free, which is great, but then you're taxed on it coming out. Uh, It's kind of like the lose-lose. Well, if you don't have any money in a traditional setting, and you, let's say that if you did, you should probably move it into your employer-sponsored uh, plan. But if you, let's say you didn't, they were everything was zero and you're just doing this for the first time, keep this example easy. If you can't contribute to your Roth, you're going to contribute to the traditional. And it's a non-deductible contribution because you're going to make too much money. You're not going to get that deduction. If you immediately convert it to a Roth, you are now executing the backdoor Roth strategy. You see where we're going here. And that will now allow your money to grow tax-free because it's in a Roth IRA, but also come out tax-free in retirement. So by doing this, you kind of skirt the rules a little bit. And that's why everyone thought they were all sneaky when this, you know, someone figured it out and everyone started doing this. Everyone thought it was real sneaky of like, well, I already am phased out. I can't contribute directly to a Roth and I don't get any benefit in the traditional But if I just didn't have any money to start in the traditional IRAs, then I can just convert it all right away. There's no tax owed because I didn't get any deduction. And therefore, I can just put money essentially into a Roth IRA. And this is almost like advanced tax planning, if you will. And it's a little bit of effort to execute, but it is well worth it. Now, if you don't have an employer-sponsored plan and you had money in traditional, you're going to be blocked from doing that, unfortunately. Or if your employer plan has really horrible options, maybe it is not worth doing. But that is super rare. We help clients, a lot of clients, do this backdoor Roth strategy. And if there is money in a traditional, we normally just move it to their employer-sponsored plan, free up the accounts, and then that way they can contribute to their traditional and convert it right away to their Roth. It grows tax-free and it comes out tax-free in retirement. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there for everyone. 
with these overview of these type of plans. Hopefully the acronyms, the letters, the numbers, it wasn't too confusing, but we get a ton of questions on this stuff all the time at Physician Well Services when we're working with clients. And honestly, a lot of you write in or ask questions in our Facebook group, which by the way, if you haven't joined, I say it all the time, but please join us. Uh, community. There's several thousand of us now in the community. So please join us, go to financialresidency.com slash community in order to join. But we get these questions all the time. So I thought I'm just going to pop open record and be able to give you guys some information that I think is high enough level that uh, wouldn't be too confusing, but would allow you to understand generally what you have available. Now, I'm probably going to do a part two of this and I'd love to hear feedback but I'm probably going to do part two of this show where I'll go into small business plans, you know, the solo 401ks, SEPs and simple IRAs. I'll talk maybe a little bit more on the 401a. And then, you know, there's other types of IRAs, inherited IRAs. And, and you know, then there's you know cash balance plans or other type of profit sharing plans or stock bonus plans. There's so many different things out there. So if you guys want to hear about this stuff and understand more about it from me, just let me know, draw me a line in the community, email me at ryan at financialresidency.com. Love to hear feedback on what else you'd like to hear on the show, but I'm thinking I'll do a part two and maybe even a part three if you can convince me to do it. So hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks so much for being here. Really, really appreciate all of you and please join our community if you haven't done so already. I want to give you guys a quick disclaimer as your host of the financial residency podcast. I am not an attorney, a psychic, nor do I play one on TV. I'm glad you came here to learn and get excited about your finances. There's absolutely no purchase necessary to win, but you do need to know that your money decisions should be talked through with someone knowledgeable about your situation. Unfortunately, that person isn't me unless you're already a client. And then that's a totally different story. So consult, your attorney, your CPA, or heck, reach out to me, a fee-only financial planner, to help you get on your feet the right way. Next week, I am talking with a really cool podcaster, Taylor Brana, and we are talking about becoming time rich with work-life integration. And it was a great show. You guys are going to absolutely love it. He is a blast to talk with. Have a great week. Catch you guys on Friday. Cheers. Cheers.